0: Yep, start. Sir, so, though I have not read your book yet, I still take the privilege of asking a few questions. While we are talking about uh, the outsiders interpreting us and giving us information about ourselves and that leading to a politics, a sort of a politics, a sociology which is problematic, don't you think that we at times are taking our, ourselves as Indians, as passive beings who are being, uh, you know, given something from above and we are taking it. Like, what about the, uh, the sort of identity politics that actually existed before yeah. Mackle yeah. came into the scene? Yeah. Like, we, de- we definitely have been a very dynamic society, uh, not a monolithic society, we had a lot of, uh, uh, what you say, identity politics going on. So these people came with their own identity politics and that fused, uh, fused that with our identity politics and then that leads to a new synthesis. And Definitely, th- there might have been a lot, lot of active involvement from the side of the Indians. And today as well, the sort of identity politics that comes out of bashing Sanskrit promotes promotes uh, interests, identity interests. Why don't we talk about the Indians, the active involvement of Indians in promoting such uh, a Sanskrit bashing?
1: Please keep it short, please. Yeah,
2: please keep it short. Okay, I'll answer the question.
1: Uh,
0: sir, I have one more point. No, no,
2: no, no more point. One Thank question you. per person. We have 20 people. One, we can come later if there's round two. D- okay, fine. So, yeah.
0: Oh, Sorry, I forgot to introduce myself. My name is Ranujar Bhattacharya. I did my MA in Ancient Indian History from JNU. Thank you.
2: So, uh, I, 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 I'm trying to understand it. The best I can understand is why don't we focus about the identity politics that Indians have generated uh, even before the British and the, or even before the colonialists and even today. Yes, we should do studies of that. I mean, there are many things to study and I am not saying don't study them. I am studying Western Indology because Western Indology is now taking over projects of doing 500 volumes. Western Indology is taking, this is going to take over a large part of the uh, school curriculum, already taken over training of our media people, all these Barkha, Dath and uh, who's the other fellow. Sardesai, uh, no, no, Sardisai. Sardisai. They are all from uh, places like uh, Columbia School of Journalism and Oxford. They're, most of these guys got their training there. So, I am going where the Bimari is the biggest, the biggest Bimari. Okay. So, I work backwards. As a doctor will say, what are your symptoms, then I'll diagnose it, then I'll figure out what to do. So, I'm looking at the symptoms. The symptoms are this very Americanized, Anglicized. Uh, I'm looking at the Japan Literary Festival, who will come, who will not come. Uh, who, uh, Children Pollock has been celebrated eight times. When I was there a couple uh, of years ago, uh, there were three panels, full panels, not on any other person but him, funded by the Murthy family and sponsored and so on. So, I'm looking at who are the most powerful people. And not, uh, there may be many dialogues going on on identity, but I'm looking at where, where it is the most powerful, most influential, governments giving award, billionaires giving award, uh, and even traditional Sanskrit sc- scholars uh, getting bought off. So, there's several, I'm told five or six uh, faculty people in Delhi University who are on their payroll, one or two very prominent uh, uh, scholars of Sanskrit in Mysore. They were about to take over representing the in the in the Western world. Uh, at at a chair controlled by Fred Pollock, where he would be the person deciding who gets to be on the chair. So, this is spreading faster and with greater consequences. So, I, with my my limitations of how much I can do, I pick that topic. Now, what I would like to do is suggest that you pick up the topic you suggested. You please produce a book on that next year. (laughs) It's easy to say to a hardworking guy, sir, you should have… Figured out, you know, you're a batsman, but you know, sir, you should have also learned to be a baller. The point is that I am a batsman who if I'm a, a mediocre batsman, maybe I should become a better batsman rather than becoming neither here nor there. So what I am doing is what I am positioned to do. I'm also sitting in that country, I have access to that knowledge. For forty years I've understood how that mind works. I'm not afraid of them, which most of the people here are. I don't need their money, I I they can't hire me or hire me. So uh, just like Sri Krishna tells Arjun, your swadharma is based on your background and your context. So my swadharma, or uh, to critique the American ideologies, is based on my competence, my capability. I understand English. I understand their infusion of language with their philosophy because I've taken, uh, done all that studies. So my whole life and background qualifies me to do that. So rather than uh, rather than encouraging more of that, what I can do, you are asking me to stop that and do something else that I don't know anything about. That, that I don't know anything about. That's something else you should do because you're
3: qualified. Rajiv ji, my name is Bharat Sharma and I'm a Hindu activist. Uh, The question is that uh, uh, Sheldon Pollock and his nefarious designs have been very well exposed over a couple of years by you and yet uh, Murthy family goes and funds him, Uh, uh, Devdutt Patnaik has been exposed by you and yet uh, you know it gets… uh, he still gets all the right slots. So, uh, we know the Breaking India book you've mentioned. But, in particular, case of Narayan Murthy, is it something to do with his being on Board of Ford Foundation? And, you know, is there something deeper that's not evident? Or See, is okay, that's a,
2: okay. So, I don't want to uh, pick on any one person because, uh, you know, he has a right to spend his money the way he wants. It's his money, uh, he's made it honestly. And so, he chooses to spend it this way. I mean, all I can say is whatever the motives may be, whatever the logic may be, I can analyze uh, as, a, as a common citizen, I can analyze what I think are the consequences of funding that. How much harm, what, what can be done to, to fund it that way. Uh, whether there are, what his, what his life may be about in terms of what causes him to do all this, it's very hard to predict that. But certainly, the globe-trotting billionaires, without picking on anyone, are really into uh, wanting to be uh, seen as sort of the new honorary whites. Okay, sitting at this very liberal white table, academic, where academic, you fund a couple of chairs and you fund some scholars, you become this learned person. And now you are in the limelight in the United States and the, the who's who in New York will felicitate you and your picture will come. You can send it back to your village saying now I'm sitting with the white people also. So, this complex we have, we have this kind of complex, uh, this complex to sort of uh, be seen as having arrived on the global stage. You know, this is, these are, are the people who made it rich in this country. Then the next thing to go, uh, show, uh, do is to show that I have a very big yacht or have a very tall house in Mumbai or something like that. So, maybe it is part of that complex. Maybe it is part of that uh, uh, kind of Americanization uh, of uh, the, the elite Indians uh, is part of this, what these guys are doing. That's my sense of it. Yeah, go ahead, please.
4: I think one of the things that is not taken into account is that in America, these great universities were built by very great endowments that were made by their uh, richest. Now, what has happened? Globalization has given the sense to the Indian rich that they don't need to invest in Indian universities. it's It's just as easy to invest abroad and their children can easily go there and it's it's all part of this you know wonderful, happy family that uh, our global world is. That's why I want to sort of take this opportunity to say that it is extremely important that academics value location in research. Yes. The moment you produce a great work of research in an American university, whether in science or in the humanities, you are adding to the wealth of that university and that country. If our young people are not conscious of this and we think that it's all a wonderful, happy family, it is not. Intellectual property is extremely important and therefore location is very important. So, Indian universities must produce great translations and for that students have to stay back and work here.
2: Yeah, No, this is absolutely correct. Uh, In fact, fact, it has become the latest. 20 years ago, 25 years ago when I started my foundation, I was giving grants to all these American places. I gave away all the money I could spare. Now, I wish I hadn't. But I learned from it. I learned from it, and lot of these people took my slides and how, why you should do this, that, that, and said we'll help you raise funds because I ran out of funds. And then uh, by then I had switched and decided that I this is the wrong thing to do. We have to f- invest in uh, R&D and knowledge here. So now it has me. Unfortunately, I. Turn, this, uh, turn loose this tendency, this fashion. Now it has become a fashion out of control. Every week or so you find somebody is given so many million dollars to fund a chair here, fund a chair there. And these people are not doing due diligence, they are not doing Purva Paksh to see whom they are giving money to, who is going to occupy the chair, what is his history. And so this, uh, one of the reasons I started writing this book is that Shingeri Mutt was in the process of setting up a whole chair for Adi uh, shankara studies at Columbia University to be headed by these kind of people. So, uh, you know, it does matter, location does matter. And when I raise this issue, why aren't you taking all these millions of dollars and creating Adi Shankara chairs around India? I was told that, you know, Indians are not as good at scholarship. This is what I was told. So, uh, while we can be the IT hub for the world and while we can be a hub for making automobile parts and making pharmaceuticals and all kind of other industries, we think we cannot be the Sanskrit studies hub of the world, which is very strange. But Sanskrit studies we think others know better and we, we have become the knowledge consumers. They are the knowledge producers. We are the consumers sitting at their feet. The uh, If the camera can zoom in on this, can you please zoom in on this? Uh, please. The, this book. You, If you look at the cover of this book, uh, at the bottom, is the big image is Sir William Jones and the pundits. This is a huge carving on a wall in a, in a chapel in Oxford, and it took me a long time to go in, get all the permissions, and get the picture and all the high resolution. So uh, this is uh, it's it, Sir William Jones said that uh, he and at the bottom it says he gave the Hindus their laws. Okay, so he's shown writing some laws and dictating them, and uh, these pundits are listening to him and uh, he's telling them their laws. He's telling the Hindu laws. So now. In this book, I say that today uh, Sheldon Pollock would be giving the Hindus their human rights <laughs> because the whole idea of uh, uh, for, you know exposing human rights in Sanskrit, human rights problems, and telling them how to liberate and all that. So, if one were to do a carving, if maybe the Murthy family would one day sponsor such a carving, it'll be it'll be not only uh, Indian. Indians, but they won't be sitting on the floor. They'll be sitting on sofas, drinking whiskey, and uh, un- lead. they'll be the Indian elite, anglicised Indian elite. Uh, uh, so, so Sheldon Pollock will be shown as uh, teaching the uh, Indian elite the human rights uh, that they lack, and then there'll be another group of Indians writing checks and thanking him with a lot of money. <laughs> so, this is this is how the story of uh, the British has shifted to control in the United States. This is a very important point that you made. Okay, next
0: question. Okay, okay, thank you. So, I uh, have two questions, I mean, two parts of a question. Um, the first part is, uh, I'm a Philesh and I'm currently a student of sociology here at JNU. Uh, so the question is, now we have figured out that, you know, uh, they're going to do a translation of more than 500 odd books and uh, there's, there's something that is even a big a grand project that Max Miller did. So the question is, have we shaped in our minds an alternative project that would outpace their uh, pace of translation?
2: And if yes, I mean, what are the modalities? I mean, have we thought out something? Okay, so uh, what, uh, the, no, 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 just one question. We'll to go through quickly. So what is our response to this 500-volume project? Uh, first part of the response is to spread awareness. That's what this book is done, to make people aware. I don't expect the Murthy family will change their mind. But I think it is likely, it is possible that alternative funding sources will come and create another project. And in that other project, I would like not one man sitting in New York in charge of the whole thing. I would like uh, traditional scholars some of them from various dharma traditions, some of them from uh, Sanskrit studies departments like JNU and various other places, uh, and some uh, West, uh, people trained in Western ETM also. Should from be, translation studies. Maybe. From translation studies, it should be a it should be a team of people. And before you translate even one volume, you should write down some common standards. Like, for instance, are you going to support Aryan theory? What is your chronology? There should be consistency so that certain certain ideas, certain assumptions certain assumptions are clearly defined right now i have no faith in what will be what will be the assumptions on which based, based on which some uh, uh, x or y book will be translated that is a chaos right now which we don't need so we need to get the funding do some standards and then start this project sir i am mc rao i am a
0: scientist and banker and after doing my learning and uh, earning, I am now serving Hindu Heritage Foundation where we teach Sanskrit to foreign students, where we also where we also are making very sincere effort to unite Hindus and Buddhists because their DNA is resembling. What, what steps and what planning we have in mind so that more and more people, more and more these young students, say even by ones. Uh, sons and children, they study Sanskrit. I want that they must yes. do. But uh, what would they after that? When will they be absorbed? What will happen to? Okay,
2: I understand, it, I understand the
0: uh, question. I mean, not only in respect of money, but in. I
2: I, I understand the question, so I will answer it. So the organisation I I trust the most, that, and that is developing this kind of a strategy. For first of all, there is a Sanskrit commission in HRD right now, and they are going to produce a report answering these very questions. And uh, there is an organization called Sanskrit Bharati which is very successfully spreading spoken Sanskrit. Some of the ideas I believe being considered are that the uh, people who learn Sanskrit should not be put into a separate Sanskrit department only. They should be Sanskrit scholars in the math department. In the They should be Ayurveda scholars in the medicine department. Uh, they should be people who know not Shastra and who are into the, the aesthetics and drama and these kind of departments, you know, uh, uh, poetics and literature departments. So, the various bodies of knowledge in Sanskrit should be exported to those departments. And then you have a fusion of the Sanskriti from the past and the modern today. Sanskrit becomes relevant. These people get careers. And, and we modernize and up, update our Sanskriti also. So, that's rather than a ghetto, a corner where all the Sanskrit people, they live in some Sanskrit paatshala. We have to bring them into the mainstream through various disciplines. That is the thinking. <clears throat> Good
5: evening, sir. My name is Kamal Ravan. I work as a software developer. I have been uh, following your uh, Yahoo group for quite few years now. Sir, uh, my question is that
0: uh, I have a daughter who is in KG right now. When she come to home, like Professor Jha mentioned, uh, past few years have seen a trend of uh, having lot of
5: cartoons on the name of our historical characters. Like Krishna is one, uh, which is converted to cartoon. Uh, Bhim is one which is converted to cartoon. Chris- uh, and uh, 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 Hanuman is one which is converted to cartoon, And all of them are very contemporized, very westernized, uh, not uh, uh, westernized in a uh, in a western sense, but westernized in
2: very Indian sense, the way. So I see it as a digestion uh, uh, from uh, your uh, uh, book. So Yeah. So there is also one Sia K. Ram, yeah, someone told me, where, where they have uh, Ram and Sita doing some uh, uh, whatever, you know. Down, uh, Bollywood dance—they're doing some Bollywood dance and whatnot, you know. So uh, what what it does is it turns it, it turns itihas into myths. And once you've uh, which Dilip Prabhakar is the champion and everybody's eat, eating out of his hands. So once you've turned itihas into myth, it means myth is not necessarily true. It means it can be anything. So now it is fiction, and therefore you have the license to make it whatever you want. So once you've broken the itihas then as mythology you can, next guy can do whatever he wants, this is what they are trying to do. They are trying to, the first first strategy is to do it with respect so that you will say, Arey, my Ramayana has become great uh, world world epic, bana diya, huh? Hanuman ka kya bana diya hai. so first they will do it with respect. But once it is out of the itihas genre, that once that genre is broken, then you know it's a free for all. This is a very dangerous thing that's going on. Our people, I'm sorry to tell you that we don't, rather than being, uh, uh, we are so far from a solution. Our people don't even know there's a problem. Most people think nay, nay, it's very good for us. That is the dilemma here. My She said, I know you, I know Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ram and Chita do disco dance. And yeah, that, is, that is the idea. Hello, everyone. So my name
3: is Tushar Bhatia. And I want to ask, uh, where did Sanskrit lose the ground, looking back in history? I want to particularly ask this question in order to identify those mistakes which were committed by my ancestors and <coughs> eventually they became slaves. So yeah, as I
6: said earlier, uh, Sanskrit lost much of its ground uh, <coughs> in the uh, colonial period, actually. And then uh, uh, that led to uh, the progressive closing down of many of the patshalas and uh, creating a fashion out of uh, English medium education. I have uh, a lot of documents where... Uh, See, uh, uh, every uh, small Raja or Jaminda used to have a school where people would go and study Sanskrit. When the Britishers approached them, they said, hey, why are you studying this? Let's have this nice uh, modern education. So it progressively replaced Sanskrit education with English medium education, became fashionable. And then the Rajas would now go to uh, uh, the Britishers and then have a whiskey and all those. uh, you uh, know, uh, copying of the of the mannerisms, etc. And then there was there was power behind it. So the the colonial powers wanted; they were in the control situation. So they wanted to do something, and they did it because there was uh, they were in the controlling situation. So I would say that, that was the period when actually we started losing grounds.
1: So they would also
2: play polo with them, and they would get this twenty-one gun salute, mm-hmm. and then their son would go and uh, uh, in Cambridge and right. have a good time. Yeah, Recently, yeah. I was in
6: Jodhpur, and then uh, the Jodhpur. Uh, um, uh, the Umayyad Singh Palace. I was reading one of the incidents. So, the Umayyad Singh actually took the whole polo team from India and horses to London to play polo there. And you can see at the taxpayers' money and people's money, you can indulge in such things which are completely unindian. indian So, uh, we kind of delighted ourselves in being in the company of the of the Westerners.
2: See, the strange thing is, the Ahmadmi is given pride that Hamara Raja, what is it? Huh? I mean, this idea of uh, playing on our uh, aesthetics and playing on our weakness is pride. Same thing is game, game going on now. We are going to send it all over the world. It will be the best cartoon of the year. Oscar will be Most Indians feel very proud because there is so much self-esteem lacking, so much inferiority complex. If we have a little of we will be very proud global theater Now we brought you in, maybe we brought you in in an inferior capacity, but at least you are in the in the theater, up stage, but the The person feels very proud, Kimerricoco role This is the problem. It has to the solution is self-esteem. Self-esteem happens. now there is money there is political independence, now there is also some financial, economic independence, at least for some strata of society. Now we need to decolonize the mind, we need to decolonize Indology because that decolonization will bring back the Adhikar, so we can reimagine ourselves. That's so important.
3: Hello, uh, I'm Ramakrishnan. Uh, one of the constant themes of your writings is this idea of Purvapaksha. So I just wanted to ask you in your research, uh, where do you find that we have lagged? Where we have started lagging behind in Purvapaksha, because of which we are in this
2: situation today. So there is a chapter in this book called the Death of Purvapaksha. Uh, I, I don't believe in the death of Sanskrit, but I believe the death of Purvapaksha, because uh, in the time earlier times, every uh, I, school of thought used to do Purvapaksha on other schools of thought, understanding it on on their terms, giving a Uttarpaksha response. But somehow, you know, when the early Christians came in the Malabar coast, there was no serious purva of Christianity in their political structure, their economic structure, social structure. Nobody bothered to do that. At least we don't know of any. So, a thousand years later, when the Portuguese came, we really had no idea who these people are. And the uh, the uh, Vijayanagar Empire had a vice-admiral on the um, Malabar coast who invited Albuquerque, the Portuguese, to come and help him fight another Indian king. One king invited the Portuguese navy to help him fight the other king, not knowing who these people are, what's the grand scheme and how what will be the end game for them. Short term he will help you fight your enemy, long term he will finish off both of you and rule over both of you. We never understood that. So, this happened. Even when the Portuguese came, no Indian said, "Okay, now let's let's send anthropologists to Europe, let's send theologists to Europe, let's send historians, and let's do on them in their headquarters." Like they are doing constantly studying us, and we are so proud they are studying us. They are studying us for a reason. Yeah, we never sent people over there to study them because even in the 1500s, 16 1600s, if we had if we had 200 years before the British established, if we had understood the western culture, the western church, the, what they are all about, the whole pr- project of world conquest, that how Christianity first took over one continent after another, and after another. If we had really mapped out the poor paksha of what they are doing, maybe when the East India Company came, maybe would have been more vigilant. Similarly with Islam, uh, from the 7th century, 8th century Sindh, till uh, four, five hundred years later coming to Delhi, we are talking about, you know, five hundred years, uh, before they reached uh, Delhi. But we've never really done a good proof paksha of them. Our, our, uh, there is no big uh, teaching about, you know, who these people are and what's their ideology and so on. Either we're very arrogant that we are too smart, we just know too much. Even now people tell me, why are you worrying about them? Truth is in my heart, sir. Uh, this arrogance that I don't need to understand them, they're inferior people, is one problem. Another is bombastic dismissal that this whole anger and uh, is insulting them rather than taking them seriously. paksh requires you take your opponent seriously. You don't dismiss them, nor do you fall in love and have them in awe. You have a very equal, equal relationship and say, okay, you are smart, you are intelligent, you are clever. I respect you, but I really want to study you. I really want to figure you out. Like a clinic, clinical doctor looking at some you know, details of uh, some issue. So, the Purpaksh tradition, loss of the Purpaksh tradition is my idea, my theory of why Indian civilization went down. We we were fine as long as we were able to study others. But the moment we stopped studying others, we stopped being competitive.
0: Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Vijay and I am a power system engineer. Uh, I have two questions. One is like uh, when do you think, I mean, the aryan Dravidian theory will get its final blow?
2: I don't know. Uh, I think the… The scholars are hitting at the Aryan invasion theory. And my interest is, my, what I am saying is there is no Aryan party, like Dravidian party. There is no Aryan political movement, but there is Dravidian political movement. Let me just give my answer, okay? I mean, I'll come to that. So, the blow has to come on the Dravidian side first. But the scholars are focusing on defeating, refuting the Aryan theory. The political power today is in the, uh, political doctrines and and parties that are calling themselves Dravidian. There is no Aryan party that we have to fight. So I, 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 there is a disconnect from our side. the The real, uh, the real nexus to fight is the Dravidianism. But the uh, scholars are fighting Aryan invasion theory. So we have to shift our target. There has to be a more research on. The so-called Dravidian languages, their texts, what is their philosophy? What is their commonality? And if you can, if you can sort of diffuse that Dravidianism politically, then the Aryanism will also be gone. That's my my approach.
0: But isn't it like uh, uh, we can use it as a regional term, like a regional term, but not as an ethnic.
2: Yeah, the, the, there because is a, even Adi
0: Shankara actually used it as a dravi, I mean, but he just used it once a, in once one, as a regional term. No, he
2: just described yeah. the place.
0: Yeah, he just, uh, he, he he just he,
2: it, that's somebody that's asking me where do you live, I say G K two, Greater clash two. But that doesn't mean that now we have a Greater class two race and ethnicity and uh, identity and religion and all that. So he just described the name of a place, an address. It was just GPS coordinates of uh, some place. Some place. Some people came from. Nothing more than that.
6: Even in Mahabharata, where we get the first reference of the Dhriveda, actually, it is purely original. Purely original. Absolutely. Geographical, it's a space. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Okay. Can we go on? Yeah. Thank you. That's a good. So, my name is Arjun. I am a student. Uh, so, you have critiqued. Uh, you have critiqued the Abrahamic religions in your other books. One of the first critics of Brahmic religions in modern India was Dayanand Saraswati. Does his discourse follow the tradition of Pura Paksha? How does it differ from yours? What is the comparison between the two? You mean Dayanand Saraswati, who started the Arya yeah. Samaj? Yeah, I think he's done, he's done a good job. I just feel that uh, we should never say somebody has done it, why are you doing it? Because first of all, 150 years ago he did not know Marxism, postmodernism, feminism. Uh, he did not know uh, the, the, the kind of theories today Pollock has come up with called the aestheticization of power. The whole literary and literarization theory. He didn't know those things. So, the West is not static. The West has moved 150 years. So, rather than saying somebody did it, you know, we have this tendency of going back and saying, chuka, uh, this uh, you know, somebody else did it, uh, you know, some other person wrote this and that is done. But it is never done. You have to, I. I the moment my book is out, I am saying already, uh, it, you, I, I wish I could write a better book right now and I could probably. So, we have to always be doing a better job rather than saying, tha. he did it. He did an amazing job for his time. Okay, For the 150 year ago, 175 year ago time period, he did a fantastic job. But we can't assume that the world has stayed constant. Now, I call these people Charvakas 2.0, the people today that we are dealing with. They are Charvakas in the sense that they don't like Vedas, they don't like the sacred dimension. They are very good scholars in Sanskrit, don't, be, don't trivialize their knowledge. Now, these Charvaka 2.0 is different than the Charvaka 1.0. Okay. Now, an earlier critique of Charvakas was not, real, not applicable to Charvaka 2.0 because Charvaka 2.0 knows so many more theories, if you read the Pollock work, so many theories Siddhanta they have come up with that were not there before. So, today we have to do another Purvapaksha of the latest Charvakas and in 20 years we will be having Charvaka 3.0 and then Charvaka 4.0. We have to have constant vigilance of uh, reversing the gaze on other people, always. It's an ongoing, this is the Mahabharat. See, the Mahabharat never ended. Mahabharat, it, it, it's not that Mahabharat hui thi. Mahabharat has been going on. If you look at recorded history, there was never a century when there was world peace. Never. Every century had major wars going on somewhere or other. So, Mahabharat may shift from one place to another place. Now, it's a global war going on. Okay. Uh, so, it is not, the, the Mahabharat is going on. And we have a text that tells us this Mahabharat is going on, you have to be a Kshatriya. you have to do poor paksha on other people. Sri Krishna is always doing poor paksha on the other side, what are their strengths, weaknesses, what this guy can do, what that guy can do, what should be your strategy. So, we have to be always doing this uh, uh, rather than saying ki ek bar ho gaya tha, we don't have to do anything. Good evening,
3: sir. My name is Alok Shukla. I am an engineering graduate from
2: Delhi
5: University. So a few days back, I have a uh, discussion on Islamic invasion on uh, Hindu temples and desecration of them. So what uh, he said was, it was nothing but a continuation of Shaivites Shev- and uh, Vaishnavites fights in between them, and they also used to destroy and desecrate each other's temples. And he cited some uh,
3: archaeological. Uh, okay, uh, I I, I, understand, also, yeah, okay, I
2: understand this issue very well. Uh, it's a very common left wing critique that uh, you cannot blame Muslims for doing what you were already doing. Now, there are many logical flaws in this. There are many logical flaws in this. I mean, you don't say, okay, this rape is okay because somebody else also had raped somebody. You, you, one uh, bad thing does not justify the other. Whether, uh, whether Shaivais and Vaishnavais did it or not is completely irrelevant to the fact that Muslims came and invaded and destroyed temples. They have to be accountable for their crime even if somebody else has to be accountable for their crime. First. S- secondly, Secondly, there is a difference between an internal clash and an outsider coming. Uh, If there is a family clash, it is one thing Uh, and outsider coming is a territorial expansion in which we lose, all of us lose, whereas if it is an internal clash, maybe person X beats person Y, they are neighbors and then next generation Y beats X, they are neighbors. Over a period of time, the value, the market share and the total capital remains in the country about the same. It may get uh, redistributed one way, then redistributed back another way. So, maybe the power goes to Shaivais, the power goes to Vaishnavais, but it stays within the land. It doesn't get siphoned uh, in thousands of Camels taking loot away to the Middle East, it doesn't happen that way. But when a foreign, when, when there is geographical expansion from one continent to the other, it is a completely different uh, uh, thing, not only in the devastation of the material side of the wealth, but also ideologically a whole new framework, a whole new paradigm of, of that originated somewhere else gets imposed on you, a whole new language gets imposed on you and culture gets imposed on you. So, the foreign invasion is of a very different kind than local kings fighting each other. That's the second point. The third point is that this business is exaggerated. This business of Shaivites and Vaishnavites, they did not have multi-generational huge armies of 20,000-50,000 horsemen for going in a big army to invade. It was a little small scale, some guy fought another guy, the way people fight. Anywhere, it was not something that uh, somebody can say that there was a Shavite kingdom uh, invading and expanding a Shavite, uh, you know, dynasty for many generations on an expansion rampage. The way we have suffered from Middle East uh, people coming. So the scale of this, the duration of this, and the intensity of this in, within India was nowhere compared to what we saw from foreign invaders. That is, that is, uh, of, was, uh, of course. No, 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 the desecralization of de-se- 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 Islamic temples of India is correct. That is correct. Okay, your question is, did a Shaivite ever take over a Vaishnavite temple or a Vaishnavite. Of course, there were instances when they did that, but it was not on the same scale. And it was it was it was basically some rivalry, local rivalry. But it is different than you know if it is sanctioned in your theology, it's sanctioned in your book. It is not sanctioned in the Vaishnavite books that you have to go and do this to the others. So if one guy of his own did it, then maybe twenty years later it was forgotten. It didn't sort of continue and expand or over thousands of uh, uh, miles and hundreds of years the way the foreign invasion stayed so that's the big difference i
7: think hello sir my name is gitanjali and i'm working on guru bhakti tradition here in the department of sociology and uh, sociology which is very close to indology academically uh, in that department we are still you know asked to look into the western theories written under eurocentric hangover and whenever we ask for our own theories we are discouraged it is said that why do you want to study your own grandmother so, in a scenario like this, how far do you think an academics can play a role in a su- sort of renaissance that you are s- talking about?
2: So, you should ask them, why are you studying the white man's grandmother? <laughs> <laughs> I am reminded of something. Morarji Desai was interviewed when he was Prime Minister. He was interviewed on uh, CBS 60 Minutes, which is a very provocative investigative show. Dan Rather, very dashing uh, guy, he was interviewing him. So, he, t- he asked him all the questions about his policy and all that. And there was this little sort of a, a thing about Muradji Desai that he does this urine therapy. Yeah? So, after the whole interview, towards the end he says, I, I, I hope you don't mind. I am going to ask you a personal question. I hope you don't mind. So, Muradji side probably accepted it, expected it. So, he said, yeah, go ahead. So, I remember this show very well. So, he says, it is said that uh, you uh, are uh, part of your healing, uh, part of your health system and so on, you, you drink uh, your own urine. So, Maraji Sai said, uh, he listed 15 or 20 pharmaceutical drugs in the United States. He said these are all made from urine. And the difference is that these people are drinking somebody else's urine. <laughs> so, I actually, actually, this made an impact on me. It made an impact on me. And then, a year or two later, I was in downtown one pharmacy, just buying something, and P.J. near the checkout counter, there was a big loud shouting going on, which in America you don't find people shouting shouting in public, you know, like that. Uh, maybe nowadays in the election they do, but normally in, the, in a store they don't do that. They sort of very quiet, well behaved. So, there was a lady shouting at some the counter so when she left and all these people were looking very nervous you know in the store when she left i went to this fellow and i said what happened he said she's very angry at us that uh, uh, she's been coming for so many years getting this medicine drug and she suddenly read this little you know this thing you have to roll out and read what's in the medicine they tell you uh, this whole the tiny print you need magnifying glass to read what's in the medicine they disclose it in the medicine bottle so, she finally read it and it said that this is made from uh, the urine of a horse. Yeah. So, she's shouting and screaming at us, saying, you have been selling me horse piss all these years. And you never told me that. It is your job to have told me that. Ah, you have been selling me horse piss and I have been having this. So, the point being, ki you are taking the knowledge of your grandmother and he is, your professor, Indian professor, got her in Fiori complex and he's taking the knowledge of these white man's grandmother. The same, it is old knowledge. It is old knowledge from your tradition versus old knowledge from their tradition. You might
4: Namaskar, sir. I'm Sakshi Bhantwaj, and I'm a student of Center for Studies of Regional Development in GNU. Sir, I wanted to, to thank you for, first of all, for giving me the honor of asking your question. Um, sir, I, came, I come from a traditional background, and after coming to JNU, I have seen instances where the professors who are given a duty of carving responsible citizens as, as a set to the country support and suggest reading radical readers like John Skate, Pollock, and Max Muller. Some of the people who have entirely abused our culture. So, how do you think this can be medicated, sir?
2: So, I am very happy that several students here have asked questions which are revolting against their professors. I know, I am sorry, I have two professors here. They are the good ones. Okay, they are the good ones. But I think that it is part of our uh, culture to revolt and uh, be audacious. And I think uh, uh, it's up to students. You are the future and they are the, they are supplying you knowledge. If it's not serving your needs, it's, uh, if it's not turning into good citizens and giving you a meaningful life, then you should fight back, you should write petitions, you should raise help. You should do that. And you know this business that okay they will punish you they'll do this and that to you you have to you have to stand up and uh, fight uh, uh, students should students in the humanities and social sciences should stand up speak up that a lot of the professors what they're teaching is actually nonsense.
0: How you claim of being desi. Well, yes. Sanskrit was yes. never been part of the uh,
2: okay, That's question. But, uh, that, that, that
4: yeah,
0: that is a question.
2: That is the question. That, yes, I, that, have, I have… Wait a second. Wait a So, firstly, I never claim <laughs> being Desi and all that. I am doing a Puru Faksha Western… I am doing a pure Western Indology. I am not uh, telling you… Uh, I am doing a descriptive rather than prescriptive, you understand the difference between descriptive scholarship and prescriptive. Descriptive scholarship, I am describing this is what they are doing and this is what the tradition says instead. And Prescriptive prescriptive would be to say, okay, we ought to do this and we ought not to do that. I, this book is mainly descriptive. In the last chapter I am also being prescriptive. So, I am not uh, being desi or this or that. I am basically, my my comparison is the the traditional scholars, the traditional Sanskrit scholars, insiders view and the outsiders view who are, who are uh, Videshis, the Swadeshi and the Videshi view of Sanskrit. That is the th- that is the extent of my book. Now, bigger question is uh, b- before the Sanskrit experts here was Sanskrit a spoken language? Was it an arm army language? I have a chapter, I have a section here where I'm giving a lot of evidence that Sanskrit was a spoken language. It was not just an elitist language as claimed to be. But I'll let you. First. Sanskrit was, uh, um, uh, Miss.
5: Having heard the whole discussion, you are going back again, <laughs> I guess very much. In Sanskrit was very much uh, spoken language in India. We have several references, several references in entire Sanskrit literature. Mahabhasha, see si Mahabhasha Patanjali. He says that, uh, if you read Mahabhasha, you will understand that. He says that, you see, Shavati word is uh, used as a going meaning in Kamboja. But Aryas say, it is not going, just means dying so there is a user. he says vikara yena marya so Bhashante, he says arya speak like this so that means very very clearly sanskrit was spoken language and also uh, he gives ma- many other uh, conversations let us think that sanskrit was spo- not spoken language pali and prakrits were only spoken language in ancient india then now my question is you know how many poems are there in Sanskrit? Lakhs of poems are there in Sanskrit. For whom they were written. You say that nobody knows Sanskrit. For whom they were written in Sanskrit language. You see, Kumar Sambhava, Raghuram, Shah, and these are prominent poems, but hundreds, thousands of poems are there. All these poems were written for themselves, or because poems are written for others, you know, for society. <laughs> for <whom? laughs> and also Brahmas. We have very famous dramas, you know, Abhidnya Shakuntala, Vikramuroshiya, and Murchakatika, you know, it was there was a movie also on Murchakatika. Utsav movie is is, is there on the movie. Murth Shakatika. So uh, this is very peculiar drama. You see all dramas, the purpose was not reading. This is have to enact on the stage. They used it to enact in your ancient days. For whom? Nobody's uh it was was popular culture. It was very popular Popular culture. And uh, there Prakrit uh, uh, also was spoken language. We are not denying that because that is evident by Sanskrit dramas because uh, combined uh, dialogues are there. Sanskrit also was spoken language and uh, uh, this uh, uh, truth you will understand when you start learning Sanskrit language. As long as you are not learning Sanskrit language you just uh, ponder over it and uh, just uh, around and you will not understand that whether it is spoken or not and all these things. So, better to start learning Sanskrit literature and um, entering into that. You will understand, you will find many, many evidences in that.
2: Also, in this book, uh, in response to that one little section, uh, I give examples of words and and, uh, writings in Sanskrit that were not uh, Brahmanical occupations, manual labor. Uh, 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 Sanskrit uh, words, which only uh, laborer would have any uh, understanding, w- only labor would find any useful. So, obviously, if words existed, it means that the people who did those jobs uh, had use for, for Sanskrit. So, there's lots about it. You yeah, want to I say something? Sort of the same yeah.
4: thing, the evidence of drama must be taken into account yeah. because uh, the Natya says that Natya is meant for the masses. It's very clear that, you know, the Vedas are exclusive, you need a lot of learning to access them. But Natya is for everyone. And so the evidence that there was so much theatre in Sanskrit, Sanskrit and Prakrit, it meant that the audience at least understood it, because this this was definitely not an elite, uh, you know, minor activity.
3: Last question. Uh, this is Dr. Shilti Tiwari. I am a kidney doctor. I have got two small questions for Dr. Jha and one for Dr. Raji uh, Mike, so, Mike, Mike passed. Yes. So for Dr. Jha, one thing regarding medical uh, medical knowledge. How to translate some medical treatises which are there in Sanskrit so that they can be applied in research? For example, in my field, Pasha, renal Mike. transplantation. The other part is, the other part Mike. is Mike, that uh, is north and south divide of language real? Because we have the same letters, Vyanjan, what we call. We have the letter which is all, which is used on both the sides of the Vindhyas and the sound is the same. So these are the two questions for you, sir. And for Professor Rajiv uh, Malhotraji, I would like to question that uh, shouldn't knowledge be restricted also? Because all this is happening because the restriction of knowledge has been given, it has been, I mean, put in uh, at a crossroad.
2: I am so not sure I understand, should knowledge be restricted? Shouldn't, the
3: knowledge, shouldn't knowledge be restricted? In what sense? In the sense that it is being misused.
2: I don't understand. Knowledge is restricted. Every,
3: every society, university, and country it yeah. tries to restrict its knowledge. No, but IT knowledge is not restricted. Yes, but it is, but it is simple knowledge. But then here in No, no, India, I, I'm an IT guy.
2: It's not simple. I've worked very hard. I mean, I mean. <laughs> what? You, 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 you did medicine. Okay. Medicine knowledge is Men, restricted. I mean, when you,
3: when you uh, talk about nanoparticles in r- Rasayan Shahs or Viman Shahs. So, there are fields which need to be restricted
2: which were probably followed till 200 years ago. Okay. Start. Let me rephrase. Should certain knowledge, should if you want to ask, uh, should certain knowledge be such that only those who are qualified, like a pilot only with tri- license can fly a plane, right? And only a nuclear scientist can go on a nuclear facility. This is a very good argument, that there are certain fields where only properly qualified people are allowed, like medicine. You can't, everybody can't just go start doing surgery. So, certain knowledge. Uh, areas require cert- only very specialized people who should have the right to practice in that a- knowledge area. That it I agree. Okay. No, sans- <laughs> but Sanskrit is not one of them.
6: Books, books and fields.
2: So, yeah, uh, yeah. So, so uh, maybe maybe a particular, maybe surgery would be Sanskrit the knowledge of surgery or you, you have to be qualified to do it. But knowledge of Sanskrit as a language has not been restricted in that sense.
6: Okay. To answer your first question, um, translation is a huge problem, translating from Sanskrit to English. We have some uh, first-hand experience of that. We were translating the science art into English, and uh, there were terms like basma, basma. How do you translate basma into English? We were were considering uh, metal ash or metal dust or something, and each time we would say, no, this is not good. So we eventually say, okay, basma, we retain uh, as basma, because uh, neither metal dust or metal ash approximate to what exactly basma is supposed to be. (coughs) So these are the problems. Now, uh, experimenting uh, these ideas, alone in Sanskrit department is not possible. So we have to team up. As I said, Sanskrit is essentially multidisciplinary. Because it's not only language, it is more than, it's a whole, whole, whole discipline, including many, many disciplines. So we can uh, you know, partner with the science departments of JNU or elsewhere. So in this case, we partnered with the University of Massachusetts chemistry department. And there are two students who are exploring at the uh, as I say nanoparticles. Now, Bhasma, um, uh, can potentially be used as a bioenhancer. So, uh, for example, you take medicines today, the Western medicines, uh, 250 mg, 500 mg, now 700 mg. Impact is the same, you know, because the size of the medicine increases. So there's a lot of uh, waste, actually, a lot of residues comes out. So if you make metals, uh, you know, which can be used in medicines as per Bhasma, purification methods and grinding method, you, you result in a better dissolution of this, of this material. That is what they are exploring. And these two stu- students have gotten very good results. Uh, they are about to graduate. I'm sure we have applied for some business with Balram Singh and all. He has up his own institute. So, we are going to get some very good results. Uh, that's one question. The second question. Um, I think this
2: could, this, um, I know a little bit about this, Sorry for interrupting. This could be actually a very big breakthrough for tr- Sanskrit traditional knowledge being applied to nanotechnology today with amazing applications. This, this would be a very big thing that he actually is a co-discoverer uh, with Balram Singh. Both of them working together. It's quite an important project.
6: Now, the second the, the second question is uh, very interesting. Uh, the Dravidian and uh, Indo-Aryan languages. Traditionally, the linguists have divided us into four language families. Indo-Aryan and Dravidian being the majority, constituting 96% of Indian speakers. And then we have austro and tibeto not more than 2% or something. Now, the Dravidian family uh, is very interesting. Actually, you know, if you compare the Indo-Aryan languages properties and Dravidian properties, there are many many overlaps. Many overlaps actually. Uh, we realize that more when we start building technologies for that. We realize there's a lot of overlap across already. Now, so that makes me wonder. Uh, I have uh, recorded that in one of the papers that we came up with uh, with Angela Mercantonio in, in a book called uh, Perspectives on the Origin of Indian Civilization. Genetically, uh, there is no difference. Genetically, no difference. So, linguistically, also, is there more uh, uh, homogeneous uh, behavior between the two families than really uh, as perceived in the linguistics domain? So my uh, uh, hunch is that maybe there was some Indic family, a proto-Indic family, which uh, split right across into the north and the south, because of the Vindhyas uh, geographically dividing us. So maybe uh, the Indic family split split into two uh, uh, families, and then the north Indian uh, Indic gave rise to the north Indian uh, Aryan languages, and south Indian Indic gave rise to the uh, four Dravidian languages. So to me, that is the, the, the possible theory instead of having the proto-European, uh, you know, coming to India and all that, all that nonsense. Now, uh, 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 if you uh, study one of the works by Amino, uh, Amino, an American linguist who studied 25 years uh, in, in South India, worked on all the languages, he has to note in one of his uh, very uh, premier articles, uh, India as a linguistic area. He says that despite being so many language families, uh, perceptibly, India behaves like a common linguistic area. So even if you go by Amino's uh, uh, you know, remark and in his very famous paper, it looks like India has been behaving because of this so much of mixing, so much of traveling across and, and so much of acculturation, looks like a single common family. And that should probably modern India should promote, than the divisive uh, nature of things, which
1: is more political than anything real, actually. One more question, final question. Do you want to say something? Yes, of course. Get a mic. Uh, here, uh, I don't want to go into my disagreements with Professor Jha. Um, however, uh, the commonalities between all the Indian languages, also the Munda languages, Uh, is very largely due precisely to the influence of Sanskrit upon the vernaculars. And in this respect, I would like to say something to an earlier question. You see, many parents fear that their children are wasting their time by learning Sanskrit. Now, even if Sanskrit does not become the Rashtra, Bhasha or something, as 49% of the uh, Constituent Assembly wanted, uh, still it is useful to learn Sanskrit. Uh, In Australia, they are reintroducing Latin which is more or less the same thing in European languages as Sanskrit is for Indian languages. Now, you see earlier it was phased out because it was deemed useless. Now, they did a test. You see one group of pupils was given English for 8 hours. Another group was given 4 hours of English, 4 hours of Latin. Now that second group, at the end of the course did not only know Latin, while the others did not, they also knew English better. And so, similarly, learning Sanskrit is simply very useful for your Hindi or whichever language. Good. Yeah, I will, I, my, my
2: view is that we should Sanskritize English. Uh, uh, we should take uh, non-translatables we should take Sanskrit non-translatables. In my book being different, I've got the, cat, the whole chapter called Sanskrit non-translatables. These are words which have no uh, dharma and uh, I, I explain why Atman cannot be translated as soul. I, I have a whole lot of these. Actually, there's a thousand of them. But I would like to write a little book on 108 Sanskrit non-translatables and uh, make it a, make it a policy or recommend a policy that everyone, even their normal language is English, these 108 words they should not translate and they should use the Sanskrit. And then you Sanskritize English. Then after you've done 108 then you do uh, 208. Uh, you just keep adding more Sanskrit words into English. And you don't have to teach people Sanskrit. You just tell them you can speak English. But these 108 words you must learn why, why what they mean, what the, why the English equivalent is not good enough, it is not the same thing. And, and uh, it, that Sanskritizes English.
7: Rajiv, there was a, a question which I feel is incomplete, the answer. So, if I have your permission, I can complete that answer. Why uh, Purva Paksh died? Why Sanskrit learning died? So, if I have your permission, I'll answer you, that you question. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, I've been working in a village, my ancestral town, for the last two and a half years, and I discovered that it was called Chota Kashi because within three why kilometers. Why don't you
2: stand here let the camera get you? So, you are explaining about the, the importance of Purva Paksh
7: no uh, somebody asked why Why the learning of sanskrit died okay Uh, i think a lot of us don't visit our ancestral villages if we were to go back to our villages we would understand that sanskrit still survives there in many ways so what i discovered was that 150 years ago there were eight centers of sanskrit learning in that little town within three kilometers and that was because It was nurtured by the saints, which were my ancestors, and all learning was funded. So the the question of uh, how do we earn out of learning Sanskrit did not arise because people understood that that was our civilization. Uh, We had great texts of all kinds of disciplines. So it was all funded and people who taught in Sanskrit, learned Sanskrit, didn't have to worry about how they would make their living. It was nurtured. And I think the time has come again where we treat Sanskrit not as a language but as a civilization and nurture it. Also, uh, uh, since nobody has spoken in Sanskrit, I'd just like to comment on what Rajiv is doing as a friend uh, in Sanskrit. So I'm just remembering a, a, a shloka from the Upanishad, from the Ish Upanishad. Hiran maye in patre in so, the face of truth is covered with a golden lid, which is the western glitter. So, we request the nurturer, in this case, Rajiv, to remove that golden lid and let us have a glimpse of the truth. And thank you, Rajiv. for this.
5: since uh, the madam said that nobody spoke normally I speak in Sanskrit <laughs> <laughs> but I thought that there are many other people who may not understand but I say something lota tank because there is a former lota tank I am Adya Bahudurat Agatibhya Atidivariyabhya Bhuyubhuyaha Dhanivadhan Vyaharami Bhavadbhai Sarvibhya Vibhinna Prantibhya Samagatibhya Chatripya, Adya Bakipya, Sarvipya, Bujabuyya Danyvadan Yaharami, Adya Mahadidam Sudinam, yet by Sanskrit Vishamkur Davantha, Jauhan Latin Rush Saman Samany Rupina Spa Bhagav Sarvada Chercham Kurma Parantikan Bahiragatya Sanskritam Bahiraga Chati Bivhagat Timahan Sandosha Tadartam Bhad Bya Bhuyu Bhuyya Danywada Pradha Tatra Pradhana Rupin Raju Malhotra Mahodypya Itohi Yesham Yesham Karani So, like this, uh, uh, having shown how we speak in Sanskrit, now I will come again to English. (laughs) And uh, I'm very happy for this question uh, session, because questioning, you know, is very, very important uh, element in Sanskrit literature. You must know this, this is very, nobody actually pointed out so far. Even actually, I think Rajuji also did, could not say that. But Sanskrit literature is full of questioning this uh, em- empowerment. And uh, these uh, questions are very important in Sanskrit because there are... Usually very important. Point. Very important actually. See, if there is no question, there is no science. Therefore, we say that there was so much science because of this questioning, the tendency of our ancient uh, scholars. You know that there is among the Upanishads, there is one Prashto Upanishad. The name itself is Prashvapanishad, all questions are there in Prashvapanishad and answers also. And you know the, in Mahabharata very famous is Yaksha Prashnas. Yaksha puts Prashnas, questions to Yudhishthira and he gives answers. So in that way, I am um, very happy for this question uh, session. So many people very nicely and uh, those who have um, asked very good questions, for them um, I, I extend my thanks. Because of them only, we will progress further and we find the solutions. I thank uh, everybody for their presence and thank Rajiv.